Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. The registration page is now open for the first ever Theology in the Raw conference. That's March 31st to April 2nd in 2022. Uh, that's going to be in Boise, Idaho at Calvary Chapel, Boise. Or if you can't make it out to Boise, then I encourage you to stream it online. Although it's going to be it's going to be a great in-person experience. We're going to have a huge after party on Friday night where you can hang out with people, get to know the speakers. You're going to have a chance to um, ask questions to all of the speakers and different panelists. It's going to be more. I, I, I wanted to do a conference that's not your just typical Christian conference, you know, where you got a bunch of speakers giving like 45-minute addresses and then they wander off stage. We're going to have shorter talks. We're going to have panel discussions. I'm going to interview the speakers after they talk. You're going to have a chance for audience Q&A. There's going to be some some longer-ish talks, 30, 40 minutes, maybe, at, you know, max. We're also going to have a lot of shorter talks, you know, 10, 15, 20 minute um, conversations. And we're going to address hard topics like uh, race, sexuality, gender, critical race theory, health, transgender identities, climate change, creation care, American politics, and what it means to love your democratic or Republican neighbor as yourself. Different views will be presented. No question is off limits. No political party is going to be praised. Everyone will be challenged to think. You can't just sit there and passively um, absorb some kind of echo chamber. You're going to be, I don't care who you are, you're going to be challenged to think somebody's going to say something that you have not heard before, that you haven't thought about. So come and be uncomfortable. Theology and Rock Conference next spring, 2022. Uh, loads of awesome speakers. Uh, Derwin Gray is going to be there. Thabiti uh, Anyubwale. Evan Wickham's going to lead a, um, a, a worship and worship's going to be in several different languages to reflect the global Christianity. Uh, Jop- Jackie Hill Perry is going to speak. John Tyson, Greg Coles, Tony Scarcello, Chris Date, Dr. Sandy Richter. Well, Hunter White just doctored her, but um, Ed Uzinski, who's also a doctor, Ellie Bonilla, who's not a doctor yet, <laughs> and several others. I'm, I'm still waiting to hear back from. I mean, I guess I could let you know now. I don't know. Maybe they said yes by the time this comes out, but uh, I, I would, lo- you know, I've invited David Platt to come out, Tish. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren, uh, man, I really hope she says yes, and a few others that I'm still waiting to confirm. I, I'm still trying to find somebody to debate Chris Date on the nature of hell. Chris Date is an annihilationist, and I need somebody who will defend the eternal conscious torment view. I've sent out tons of invites and got denied by so many people. <laughs> I should be telling you all this. You know, who 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 uh, lets the cat out of the bag and all the inside scoop behind planning a conference? I don't know. Anyway, again, March 20th. March 31st to April 2nd, you can attend live in Boise or live stream uh, from your couch. Uh, There is an early bird special, which you will want to take advantage of ASAP. It's only open. Well, it's an early bird special. So if you're a late bird, you're not going to take advantage of the special. And there is limited seating. So if you do want to come here in Boise and have an embodied conference experience, you need to sign up sooner than later because space is going to fill up uh, fairly soon. Um, so you can go to my website, pressandsprinkle.com, and I there's probably a pop-up or something that's going to be in your face letting you know how to register for the first ever Theology and Raw conference uh, titled Exiles in Babylon. All right, my guest for the show today is a friend of mine, Tyler Schwab. I met Tyler when I was speaking at uh, BYU, that's Brigham Young University in Rexburg, Idaho. Not the Salt Lake campus, but the other campus in Idaho. Tyler was a student at BYU, and I gave a talk on nonviolence and hung out with the students afterwards. And I, I, I still remember talking to Tyler. He came up afterwards. We had a great, really short conversation. We've kept in touch sort of like 
from a distance over the last several years. And he's been a, a big fan of the podcast. And um, I recently connected with him here in, in Boise and got to know the work that he's been involved with. And I was absolutely blown away at the work that Tyler is doing. Let me give you his bio just briefly because we need to jump into this. Um, Tyler grew up in uh, Wyoming and he spent the last decade working on behalf of survivors of human trafficking. He's an expert in quality aftercare services and has testified in the highest offices in Guatemala, Dominican Republic, and Uruguay. Um, He's fluent in Spanish, uh, goes down to South America a lot with the work that he's doing. He's been featured on several news outlets like um, ABC, uh, Wyoming Signatures, Star Valley Independent, and many others that he's listed here in his bio. In 2013, he founded... So he's a college, he was a college student when he founded Libertas International, a nonprofit dedicated to the prevention and restoration of survivors of human trafficking in Latin America. And he also works for, wait for it, wait for it. Shoot, I'm not seeing it. Um, underground, oh shoot, it's in the show notes. Underground Railroad, I forgot the exact name of it, but basically he works for two different um, human trafficking um, uh, nonprofits. Nonprofits that address, not not promote, um, human trafficking. Uh, so this, this podcast conversation is raw. It's gritty. It's moving. It's incredibly sad. Just, I just want to warn you ahead of time. Like the stories that Tyler shares are mind blowing in a really bad, bad way. I mean, this, the evil that humans are capable of is, is, is startling. So just to warn you ahead of time, um, there's some things in this episode that, depending on your background, your traumatic trauma that you might have experienced, this might be a fairly triggering episode, but I think it's a very needed one because the work he's doing and the work that many others are doing in this area is absolutely vital. So please welcome to the show for the first time, Tyler Schwab. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with my friend Tyler Schwab. Tyler, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Hey man, thanks for having me, man. It's a dream come true to be hanging out with Preston on this podcast. <laughs> well, I already talked about how we met, which is an interesting story. And uh, it's crazy that you know we saw each other in person six, I want to say six years ago where we met. And then just recently... Um, saw each other again in Boise. So yeah, it's, it's great to reconnect. And I, so I wanted to have you on. I wish we did this live when you were here. We should have done this in my basement, but, um, and maybe we can do it again, uh, next time you visit, but, um, just hearing about the work you're doing, man, um, with, um, with sex traffic, addressing sex, sex trafficking and rescuing, girls um out of that i i i was just blown away at the stories you're telling and I've, i just have so many questions and i'm like i'm lo- i'm sure a lot of other people do too so wh- why don't we just start by you telling us just a brief a brief bit about who you are as a person and how you got into the work you're doing and then i'm sure that'll open up a lot of different avenues for us to to go down yeah man um so uh, I definitely didn't go like seeking this out like when it when it first kind of came on my radar. I lived for a little while um, in the Dominican Republic. You know, I was a missionary down there, and and so that's it's pretty pretty different to where I grew up. I, I grew up in Wyoming, 
And so it's two very different worlds, just those two worlds. Um, and so just kind of being exposed to like poverty and violence against women, um, violence in general um, in a place like Dominican Republic. And um, when I was living there, you know, I noticed, you know, young girls hanging out with like European men, American men that maybe were in like their mid 60s, early 70s, um, really, really old, older guys. And, you know, it was weird, but I didn't think anything of it of like something weird was going on. I just thought it was I thought it was just a weird country that I wasn't used to. Hmm. And it wasn't until, you know, I moved back to the States and um, and I saw where I was reading like what trafficking was, kind of learned about it for the first time. And I know there was a statement that I read somewhere that was like there's more modern day slaves today, hmm. um, like in 2011 or whenever this was, than there's ever been um, – in the history of the world, like more than there's ever been during the transatlantic slave trade or the, during the times of Moses, during all these different times that there was more slaves living um, in 2011. I think the number back then was like 26 million people in modern day slavery. And they mentioned, you know, the Dominican Republic being a place where, the, where there was um, slavery happening. And so I, I obviously wanted to, to learn more about it because I wanted to help. It, it just touched me so deeply. Some of the stories that this guy was sharing that I'd listened to like on campus of just like the horrific crimes mm. being perpetrated against women and children and men. And so I sold like my mattress, I sold my textbooks, you know, a college kid, like you have like 20 bucks to your name at any given. I was selling like just the most expensive things that I own just to buy a plane ticket back. And mm. so I went back and I went back just, you know, I wasn't going to rescue anybody. I wasn't going to go to heal anybody. I just wanted to learn, you know, I just wanted to get to know like the that if I wanted to help, I had to do it in a way that was educated. Um, so I went down and I just, I, I hit the streets and I talked with taxi drivers, motorcycle drivers, um, anyone that kind of knew like where children essentially were being sold. And I, I ended up in this brothel, um, this kind of bar brothel um, in this place called Boca Chica, Dominican Republic. And I went in there. I, I'll never forget like the first night I was there because yeah, you know, I wasn't like undercover or anything. I was very open about what I was doing. And so I talked to this pimp and just kind of find like the youngest girl there. And I think the youngest girl was was around 14 years old. And I was like that that girl over there, I wanna I wanna talk to her. I'm not gonna do anything with her. I just want to buy her dinner. And this pimp, like he totally thought I was a cop. Like he was you know, mm. very confrontational, very very like, well, what are you doing in my club? Like, are you a cop? Are you, are you ice? Are you like, who are you? And I was just very upfront of just like, I'm just here to, just to get to know her. Like how much she, how much is she worth per hour? And the guy said, I think like 20 bucks. And, and so I gave him 35 for 40 minutes and, and money speaks to that kind of person. Like that is, that just changed the whole dynamic as, as soon as I gave him more money, like he was totally cool. But I had this girl over here, um, she came over and we were having dinner and she was just terrified. She was terrified of me. And so I, you know, I kind of broke the ice with her. I told her I wasn't, I wasn't going to do anything with her. I just wanted to talk to her and find out her journey, find out her story. Um, and so when I told her, like, I wasn't going to do anything with her, like you should have just seen like just the flood of emotion that came over her face of just relief. Um, and I was curious of why that was. And so, and she was telling me like she opened up with me when she found out that I wasn't expecting anything in return from her of, you know, I came to this club three nights ago. Like they told me it was a job offer. I came here. Um, you know, they lied to me. They told me I'd be waiting tables. They're, they that when I got here, they took they 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 took my cell phone. They took all these different things. 
and they told me I'd have to be attending these clients. And my first client asked for a sexual act that I had that I'd never experienced before because she came from a very, very conservative Catholic background. Oh. Um, and so when this client asked for this, this, this sex act, she had no idea like what that meant. And so for the next two days, she was locked in a room and she was forced to watch like that particular sex act, um, that sex act being anal sex. Um, on like Pornhub and X videos and all these videos so that, that she would know what to anticipate when a client asked for that. And she thought that I was going to be that client. And so when she found out that I wasn't, like she she was relieved. And she told me her whole story of, of she grew up very poor. These people came to her house, offered her a job. She went to this this location. Um, and her parents, you know, when this guy came to his club, like thought he was a godsend of just he's offering my daughter a job and education. She can help our family economically because we're starving. But it wasn't at all like what was promised. And, and so that was my first night like in country. And for the next month and a half that I was there, um, like I just would meet girls with that very similar story of girls that had been recruited out of poor families that have been um, – that came expecting an education, a job, and in turn were trafficked under the threat and, and, and wouldn't escape because of the threat of violence. Mm. And I had it in my mind. I was like, this is so terrible. This is so heartbreaking. Just a month and a half of just like hearing these girls' trauma. And I decided I was going to do something when I was, you know, in my mid-40s, late 50s, early 50s, whatever, when I had money to give and I could give to somebody. And when I was flying home, I ended up in the, like the Delta Lounge through Atlanta to Salt Lake City. Um, and there's this guy there and he saw my shirt and it was like a Dominican Republic shirt. Um, and he asked me like, what I was doing in the Dominican Republic. And I just jokingly, I was like, oh, I was hitting up some clubs. And whatever I said, like must've just like hit a nerve with him to where he just confided in me. Like he saw me as someone safe. And he was like, the Dominican Republic is so great. Like I can leave work at six, be on a plane by seven, be in the Dominican Republic by 9.30, and then um, have sex with young women and kids all weekend and be back at work by 9 a.m. on Monday. And I was like so shook by that experience of just like, I can't believe like someone like this exists right now, like in 2011. Like I can't wait to, I can't wait until I'm older to, to do something when I have more resources. Like I have to do whatever I can right now and forever to, to protect these girls from people like him. And I'm, Tyler, I'm just and curious because this is how my brain works when you tell that story. Would you have guessed that about him based on his presence? Do you know what I'm asking? No, like, dude, he was a doctor. A doctor. Like he wasn't like you. Yeah, like, you know, like you watch like Law and Order, like some of these pedophiles are like these like heavyweight guys with half beards and just they look like pedophiles. Like I don't, people, I don't want to say they look like pedophiles, but some people look like pedophiles. Yeah. But this guy, he was very well dressed. Um, he was wealthy. I mean, he was sitting in the Delta Lounge. Like that is like the epitome of privilege if you're sitting in the Delta Lounge in Atlanta. And he, I would have never suspected that he was like a sex tourist or a pedophile or anything like that. And that, I think that's what caught me so off guard. It's a doctor. I'm scared to ask what kind of doctor he is, but yeah. Wow. Oh, sorry. Go Keep, keep going. Yeah. No, no. And that's what, that's what started my journey. And so I ended up dropping out of school the first time um, and starting my own nonprofit, um, working in the Dominican Republic, working in Latin America specifically, um, supporting, um, Aftercare for survivors of uh, child sexual abuse material, human trafficking, rape. Um, and that's what I've been doing for the last 
nine years. Um, so I have my own NGO. My own NGO is called Libertas International, which is still running. Say that again. Say, that, say it again. You clicked out real quick. What's the name? Oh, of it? sorry. Yeah. Uh, the name of the NGO? Yeah. So my personal NGO is called Libertas International. Libertas. Okay. Yeah, it's it's Latin for freedom. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. And we su- we support aftercare for survivors of, of human trafficking, CSAM, and rape in Latin America. And I'm currently employed by a group called the Operation Underground Railroad, um, which rescues um, human trafficking survivors across the world. And my current position there is it's it's a mouthful. It's senior country manager for aftercare for Latin America. Well, what I love about your story, and, and one reason why wanted to have you on in particular one you know we have a relationship but um you started your nonprofit while you were in college is that correct yes, like because there's, there's other people that ha- that run you know large organizations that address human trafficking and it's kind of like well i could hear people say like well you know i'm a painter i'm a business owner i'm a teacher like that's i'm i you know i care very much about this as a thing but that i i can't do this. What I love about your story is you're just Tyler, dude. Like you, (laughs) you came face to face with a profound injustice. And as a college student, we're able to do something kind of just grassroots or whatever. And now this is something you do full time, but you, you represent many people listening who are going to resonate with so much what you're talking about, but might feel like, ah, but I can't really, what can I do? You know, anyway, that, that's, I just love the story that you started this in, in college. It's crazy. Um, can you give us, help us get our minds around the global phenomenon of sex trafficking? Um, maybe some numbers, some areas, um, the industry. Just give us a little a peek behind the curtain of what is going on right now, even as we're recording this podcast. Yeah, so there's um you know there's 27 million people more or less like are you know kind of hard to come by um, that are victims of human trafficking right now. The majority of them being women that are forced into the sex trade, women and children. Um, the average age of of a girl when she goes into the sex trade is 14. Um, and I can tell you, I just it's um it happens all over. Like it's it's. There's not there's not a community in, in the world that's not untouched by this and so, it's not touched by this in some way, um, and uh, you know the pandemic is just worse than that honestly um, because there's 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 less reporting now because children aren't being because the the big reporters in the past were like people like school teachers school counselors and kids aren't seeing their teachers or school counselors as much. And they're spending more time online, which allows more of these predators to groom. That's that's a growing phenomenon here in um, just the new age of technology is this thing called cyber sex trafficking. In fact, one of the first cases that I worked that really shaped my career was a case of cyber sex trafficking of um, – we were working with um, some law enforcement officials that had um, – that found like this – this I, the IB address of this woman – who was broadcasting um, child pornography, child sexual abuse material to a, to the city of Pittsburgh. And what happened is that she was trafficking her two daughters, ages seven and five, 
and she was taking requests from the people of Pittsburgh, um, like sexual acts that she would want the older child who was seven to perpetrate on her younger sister. And our partners knew that this was happening in their country, but didn't know exactly how to trace it. Um, so they, they allowed us to help with this case and allowed us to bring in some of our experts to help track where this IP address was coming from, allowed me to come in to help provide the aftercare for, um, for these girls. And I remember we did the raid and we, we arrested the mom. Um, we rescued the two little girls and they, they were just living in a hellhole, just a one bedroom shack with this just dirty mattress and this camera that was placed right above the mattress. Um, and it was a case that really shaped my career just cause it was, it was so dark and it was the first time I had encountered like a family member that was really trafficking their, their kid, but also just how easy for it was for this woman to traffic her own kids inside of her own home. Um, and so that's what I think people, there's sometimes a misconception that like you have to be taken to Thailand or Mexico to be trafficked while like you can be trafficked and still go to school every day, still live with your family, still live with your grand grandparents. I mean, kids are trafficked every day and they still go to school. They mm. still um, go to soccer practice. They still do all these things. And um, so like knowing the signs of like what to look for uh, can really help us as like a community recognize uh, those kids that are that are being abused. But there's not a community in, in the in the world that's not touched by this in some way. I mean, that's crazy. What you're describing is is, is crazy. Um, how common is that kind of scenario? Maybe not the specific darkness of that scenario, but how common is it for, let's just say, somebody in the United States to have somebody close to them that is trafficking them, like a child being trafficked, not being kidnapped or whatever, but like it's where the, this scenario where they're living a on the surface of it seems like a normal life. Is that, I mean, one in a million or is it like... <laughs> several hundred thousand people or I mean, I, I, maybe you don't have specific numbers, but I mean, have you encountered various cases like that? Yeah, there's, there's a, I can tell you the number, um, that the, that this company called Polaris puts out, I think it's around 65 to a hundred thousand kids are trafficked here in the, in the United States. Okay. Um, and, um, I can just speak like for, from where I live, like here in Salt Lake city, um, we see a lot of like familiar trafficking where um, kids are trafficked by their own family and they still, like, they still do the everyday life where they go to school and, and they go to soccer practice, they go to church even, and they can still be trafficked for uh, at night or they can be trafficked online. Um, we had a case uh, here in Salt Lake of a girl that was, um, She's being trafficked by uh, her um, clergy leader here, um, where he would uh, he had you know he had a group of other clergy that were unfortunately um, involved in something like this, and and he had like a spiritual hold on her to where um, he made her feel as if this was like an elevated step of like um, of their religious experience, um, and but she, and she was doing you know the everyday thing that like a, a girl growing up here in Salt Lake City would of going to school, or, uh, being a cheerleader doing dance classes. It's just on Sunday, um, she would, she would be in traffic by her clergy. Um, what kind, so of, scenarios, what kind of clergy? Are, I mean, like a Christian church or some cult or what? It was you, uh, an LDS bishop in this, in this specific case. Um, okay. and so he, they use like that spiritual manipulation to, to, 
to have her feel that it was an elevated spiritual experience. And it was total grooming, total manipulation. Um, and it, they're, they're all in jail now, like, thank God. But, um, you know, they, 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 they build that relationship of trust and then explore that relationship of trust, which is just, just too common. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's how traffickers work of, they, they'll never, um, like, it's so important to just like know who your kids are talking to. And I don't want to say like, trust no one, but like, trust but verify like in some of these cases because when you remember the case of like elizabeth smart like way back when when she was kidnapped do you remember that no okay so um usually traffic sometimes people think that like traffickers will kidnap kids and and that does happen but it's not super common just because when you kidnap someone like the amber alert goes out everybody gets a text message like i think he kicks up a lot of dust well, if you can manipulate that person, tr- like get to trust that person, groom that person, and then convince them to leave of their own accord, um, then there's never going to be any dust uh, kicked up. Like, I mean, there's a case here in Salt Lake of um, a boyfriend, um, mother meets a meets a boyfriend, um, and he slowly starts to groom this girl of, I'd love her to like come meet my friends, to come spend the night, to go clothes shopping, stuff that. Um, might seem innocent, I guess, like in a romantic relationship. But what he was doing is he was grooming um, her, trafficking her essentially um, without having to like physically kidnap her mm. to, to not kick, it, kick up any dust. And because he was able to fly under the radar for so long, like her abuse um, lasted a significant uh, longer time. So, yeah, so that, that's I've heard I've heard this before that, you know, the the it's really rare for like. I mean, I'll just use my daughter as an example. Like they're walking downtown and a you know black SUV pulls up and grabs them off the street, throws them in the car and drives off. Like that is extremely, that kind of thing is extremely rare, right? Because one, like I, it's, you know, if they were like homeless or something, then, then I could, that might elevate that kind of scenario. But I mean, I'm going to be blowing the whistle and they, they want to fly below the radar, right? Like the last thing they want is more attention. They just want to, um, fly below the radar. And so it's not that kind of scenario that leads to it. It's often what you're saying, like somebody being kind of wooed, wooed into it or parents kind of being involved. Um, man, can you tell us, cause you've done work in like South America quite a bit. Um, what does it look like from A to Z to, to rescue somebody out of trafficking all the way from like going into the brothels, kind of what you did experimentally at the very beginning. Um, and then all, and I'm really interested too in the aftercare. Like, how does somebody recover for something like that? I mean, I just, I, my mind can't even get around how many layers of trauma there are. Just like, how, how do you get over that, or how, how does life go on after something like that? So, can you, yeah, can you speak into all that? <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. Um, so that's my job. So that's like where I have to like hold on. That hope is like that is possible and it is it is hard like the aftercare is probably the is definitely the hardest part in my opinion just because the physic physically removing somebody from a situation of exploitation is is you know hard but it's just a one-time event versus like the aftercare is an ongoing process i can give you an example of like how our team works um so we had this case um there's a case called uh, operation eternal spring in medellin colombia and so um, I can talk about this because the guy's already been sentenced. And mm-hmm. it was this American dude. His, his name was Victor Galarsa. And he was um, trafficking um, 
girls to American pedophiles. He was hosting parties and he was uh, exploiting these girls and basically like he was a he was a like a a guy that found dancers for music videos um, and he would use that like position to recruit girls that were in extreme poverty that wanted to be famous into these trafficking rings and and but he had a bunch of recruiters like he had a bunch of people that would go out to these communities and find these young girls and and convince them to come work for this american pimp essentially and so our team what's what's unique about our team um at operation underground railroad is that um we're a bunch of american former cia military law enforcement like we have a, a couple of different backgrounds but what sets us apart is like our white skin so when we go and we interact with these traffickers, um, they don't suspect that like we're working with the cops because we look just like any other American sex tourist. Mm. What they don't know is that we've made connections with like the police in the country of Colombia. We've connected with Homeland Security in Colombia and have been given specific targets on their behalf to go and investigate and verify, gather that intel that maybe a Colombian cop can't. Yeah. So like – an example of that is we'll take them, uh, we'll, we'll meet these traffickers like in these brothels and we will buy something that's not water. So like the cops, they can investigate this stuff because there's also a number of Colombian clientele that abuse these girls. But their budget is so thin that when they go undercover, they can't afford to buy like a beer or a Red Bull in a brothel. And who goes to a brothel to buy a Red or buy a Red Bull or buy a water? They just don't do it. So our team can help like supplement some of that, um, make them look more like um, like sex tourists, pedophiles. Mm-hmm. And our team always goes in um, with cameras, um, with audio, so we can we have all the evidence with these guys of um, like what they're saying, what what are they, how are they exploiting these girls? Because obviously they'll try to fight it in court, but when you have it like on audio of oh, this girl who's 15 years old costs this much money and she'll do whatever sex act. You can't deny that in court if it's if it's on audio. Huh. So once all the evidence is gathered to where we can have a successful prosecution, um, our team goes in with the police and does basically a rescue where we um, – the Colombian police will arrest the pedophiles, arrest the traffickers. And then our team, my team, um, will go in after the fact with the social workers once the, the mayhem has already taken place and start working on that aftercare uh, for mm-hmm. those survivors. And in this case, you know, you kind of work your way up the hierarchy of needs yeah. um, where it's like you need food, shelter, and water. I had one case once of a girl that was about eight months pregnant when she was rescued and she hadn't been fed in three days because the tracker wanted to make her look thinner for the, for the, for the purchasers. And so in that case, like the first thing I did was buy her like a like a like a like a chicken, the type of chicken they sell like in a grocery store, like a Smith's, a rotisserie chicken. <laughs> Gave it to her and she ate the whole thing, and that helped me like build trust with her because that gift was freely given, which is you know another thing about like even talking like on a more spiritual level of a level of the of the gift of grace, um, giving something without an expectation of something in return, and how much trust that builds because these girls their whole life is unfortunately transactional. Um, and so when someone like me like offers them something without expectation of anything in return, like it really builds like our rapport, my rapport with them and allows us to kind of work our way up the hierarchy of needs of where we can, mm-hmm. um, where we can assist these girls. 
And so I'll focus on one specific girl in this case. So the rescue happened. She was freed. Traffickers arrested. And then the American – our American partners arrested the main trafficker, Victor Galarza, up in New York City. And so um, so we meet up with this survivor. She's She needed safe housing, so we got her into safe housing. She was put in a safe house for a number of, a number of months. Um, she received some mental health counseling while she was there. She started to work on like the trauma that she had been given or that she had, uh, that she had suffered um, at the hands of these traffickers. And then once she went, uh, left the home, went back to her family, we could start to evaluate some of her needs that she has um, just uh, in her family. And so one of them was that like this this guy, he uploaded um, her abuse to different porn sites. Mm. And so what – and that was starting to make the rounds in her community of people seeing her like on these like Pornhub or X videos. And what so what she wanted is to have those videos taken down and to somehow pursue justice against um, these porn companies. And so through like some various connections that we have, we were able to provide – both of those things for her. Okay. Um, her that is very unique where that was one of her needs, but we were able to help meet that need. So, so real quick. So there is yeah. video recordings of not just obviously sex, but her being a raped and abused. And that was on Pornhub. I, I'm not an expert of Pornhub. <laughs> is that like, even within the porn <laughs> ethic, is that deemed like illegal or wrong or, or not really. Cause I didn't know that that could be posted on even Pornhub or is that exactly, no, or yeah. is that how you got it down? Because they can't do that. Yeah, they can't do that. Okay. Um, so we, um, we were able to get it down cause it is illegal content. Like she was a minor, she was being raped. Um, but Pornhub, um, specifically, and there's a couple of different groups that are looking to take down Pornhub or hold porn companies like more accountable. Um, because that's a very common threat among um, teens that maybe send explicit photos is that some of these people like hold that over their heads that, that they're going to post it on Pornhub in order for them to send more videos. Um, and it's called unverified content. And there's like the channels on Pornhub that are like verified, like um, sex performers, like professionals. And then there's the unverified content, which is like username 1156 can upload whatever video that he wants. And Victor had an account like the latter of like a user okay. 5176 or something like that. It's totally legal. It, it's child pornography. It's totally legal. But the porn companies don't verify, didn't, didn't verify the video because they get so many, like so many views every day that they just didn't bother to, to verify it. But what, what sucks about Pornhub and, and this has been fixed thanks to some advocates in, in 2020, but they have a download button. So anyone that uploads something, somebody else can download. Oh, and that's gosh. what happened with this specific girl is her abuse was downloaded and then spread throughout her community. But because it happened, like she she has the right now to sue this company. Um, and so she is in a current lawsuit against this company to hold them accountable too for for the abuse that she suffered. Because she, she described it once as she was being uh, globally gang raped. Because when she saw her video, when it was forwarded to her by a classmate, it had been seen by half a million people. So, um, but in her case, like what, what, after she wanted to, you know, sue the company and pursue justice there, she wanted to go to college, but obviously like her resources didn't allow her to do that. Um, and that's something that we believe in like a hundred percent is education 
that leads to some kind of employment. And so she's currently in vet school. Like she actually last week just dissected her first eyeball, which I think is totally gross. But she's she's totally into it because um, she she loves animals, wants to be a vet. And in my experience, that's when you really see like the chain of exploitation truly be broken mm. is when these survivors are able to gain some kind of meaningful employment and start making money mm-hmm. in a way that's not exploited. When that happens, even if it's like not a ton of money, there's some kind of pride. There's some kind of um, like happiness that comes into them that they've never felt before. And they're just able – it's what I see true healing happen is when they're finally able to break that final chain of, of exploitation because um, unfortunately there's a lot of money in, in, in being exploited and, and being hurt in that way. And when a survivor is able to see that they are worth more than what people are willing to pay for them and they have some kind of skill set where they're able to gain meaningful employment, um, that's when I see the, the train truly be broken. Oh. And so like after Karen Hall, we, we try to meet their needs where they're at, whether it's – um, lawsuits, whether it's um, mental health, safe housing, returning them to their families, repatriation if they've been trafficked across country lines. And then we – at OUR and at Libertas, we we apply this method called um, a person-centered approach where each, per, each person has their own separate program essentially where um, this survivor's needs in Utah may be different from this survivor's needs in Colombia – maybe different from this survivor's needs in Thailand and just try to meet their needs exactly where they're at age wise, trauma wise, and just in their overall journey. What the actual rescuing is that do you, are you going into maybe not even you specifically, but your team that they go in and act like they're traffickers or how does, what does that look like? Yeah. So, um, I should clarify, it's always the foreign governments that rescue uh, these survivors. It's never us particularly. Okay. We help facilitate the rescue, but we're not putting like handcuffs on anybody. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's essentially what our team does. We go undercover as sex tourists to engage with these traffickers, to gain that confidence, to, to gain that intel, and then um, pass over that intel to the local cops so that they can go and do that rescue um, either with us or without us. Sometimes our ops team is not invited on the rescue, which is totally fine. But our aftercare team, we're always invited to go help provide the follow-up for those uh, for those survivors that are rescued. So like my, me, myself, I've been on probably 20 um, rescue ops, but it's always been like after the aftermath happens. Like once the arrest happens and, and bad guys are in cuffs and, and survivors are separated, that's when I come in and start to like work on the aftercare. Um, so I've never, never been arrested, thank God. Um, but that's what our team does. Our operations team is um, goes undercover and uh, basically pretends to be sex tourists um, to gather the intel for local governments uh, in their fight against these traffickers. And do they say, do they hire, kind of like what you did many years ago, do they go in and hire them and then get them in a room and talk to them and say, hey, I can get you out of this if, if you want? Or what is that? What does that look it's like? It's mainly interaction is with the traffickers. And oh. so um, they don't talk to the victims as often. So they're, they'll, they'll engage with the traffickers. And usually how it works is like they're talking with the traffickers. The traffickers saying, hey, I got 10 girls, um, ages, whatever. They're going to do sexual act. Um, and then they set up what we call um, an op, an operation, where um, we set up a location, like a party, um, either have like a 
like a ranch or some kind of building or a club or whatever. And then traffickers go and they bring, um, bring their victims. And when they arrive at this party, um, sometimes our ops team is there. Sometimes they're not. But when we are there, like we, we act like there's like, there's a party's going to happen or still engaging with the traffickers, um, like making the negotiations. Usually what has to happen is there has to be like a cash exchange before like the evidence is finally able to, to, to be prosecutable. And so usually on the day of the op is when there's like a cash exchange for sexual acts. And as soon as all the evidence is gathered, our team has like a code phrase where it's like bring in the wine or have you seen the stars or whatever. Yeah. But all of our other team knows like what that, that phrase is. And as soon as that phrase is spoken, our ops team knows that, um, cops are on their way. And so cops come and sometimes they'll arrest our team to like maintain the cover of like our team was, was, was sex tourists. Oh, um, yeah. So, and there's, we have a couple of documentaries online that people can check out as well to kind of see like how the process works. But the cops will come in at, if we're involved in the, in the rescue, um, if, if our ops team is there on site, um, they'll usually be arrested too, like a fake arrest, to just maintain that cover yeah. because, um, most of the survivors that I work with never know that the Americans that were negotiating with their traffickers were actually part of our team. Um, we main, like we maintain a very distinct separation. Um, and so a lot of those guys, a lot of our ops guys will never get to see like some of these girls that they help rescue ever again. And, but they make the sacrifice of, of exchanging with these traffickers, talking with them, going through that trauma of, I mean, that's a trauma I can't even fathom of pretending to be a pedophile and in like talking about a child as if they're a computer part or something. Um, but that's usually how the process works is it comes, the cops come in, arrest us if we're involved or if we're not there. Um, the traffickers think that we're on our way, but we never show up. And then the cops show up and arrest everybody. That, that's a whole nother, I didn't even think about that. Like for the, the person doing the rescuing has to put on a really good cover that they are going to have sex with this 13 year old, girl like that that alone is dark <laughs> makes me think yeah. of like heath ledger in the dark knight you know like how he like is that, is that an issue or is that something that though, these what kind of person does it take to do something like that a very necessary thing but gosh that that a lot of people would yeah. not be able to do that i don't think no, I definitely, I definitely couldn't, especially like working with as many survivors as I have. Like I know that the kind of trauma these people place on the survivors and I'd probably kick their ass. Like, honestly, yeah. like I think I would totally break cover, but it takes, you know, it takes a very disciplined person. Um, I'm one of the operators that I really enjoy working with. He's, he's very disciplined. Um, he's very, um, he compartmentalizes very well. Um, he's, he's a current law enforcement officer as well, um, here in, 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 in Utah. Um, but our team believes a lot in, in mental health for, um, not only for our survivors, but also for us as well. And, and so we have, um, some trauma therapists that are just really good, um, trauma therapists that, that invest a lot in like the mental health of our operators and our aftercare team. And our team, we've created, we've cultivated just a, just a spirit among our team to where, um, you know, that darkness, like you try to keep like the, that darkness, maybe like in your heart, but less in your head. Hmm. And 
it comes to a point, I think, for all of us where we just need the time to like step back. Where it's mm-hmm. like I just need a need a couple of weeks, I need a week or something to go spend time in the mountains or spend time with my family, do something to just kind of clear my head. And our team has created a culture to where that's an acceptable thing to say. Where you can say like, "Hey, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. I need to step back." That's good. Um, and how about you? I mean, you've seen firsthand so many dark stories and and really the epitome of human evil how, how do you deal with that is that is that hard <laughs> uh yeah yeah it's it's uh it's tough um i have a great therapist uh he he's super good about helping me kind of understand the things that i can't control which is mm-hmm. i think as humans we try to insert control in things to kind of give ourselves power and so we self-blame like all the time like that's my fault my fault my fault and it's Usually when things – sometimes things just go bad, but when you say it's your fault, like it just – it helps you feel better about the situation because it makes you feel like you're in some kind of control. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my self-care, my mechanisms. I love to go to like rock concerts. I was actually in just – I was in Boise last weekend at a rock concert and it was just a, such a good release of energy. Um, what kind of like heavy metal? I, love- I would I – would, I feel like I'd be a huge like Metallica fan if, if I was in your line of work or <laughs> – I do love Metallica. Uh, it, it was bare tooth. It was like semi screamo, um, which I, I love semi screamo. But I work out a lot. Like that's a good that's a good avenue for me of, of of exercise. I love to spend time in nature. But then like just my relationship with God, you know, that's that's the thing that I think is probably the most complex in my life is kind of mm-hmm. just my thoughts on him. Because either I feel like I'm super close to him, or I feel like he's just like totally kind of indifferent to the situation. Um, like I'll, I'll tell you a story that was, uh, happened last year. We worked this girl, she was trafficked by the MS 13 gang. And she, um, like this, this girl, like just survived so much abuse when she was six years old, her mother, um, in a drunken, like rage threw her into a fire. And so this girl has third degree burns like all over her face just she wears her abuse like a like like a mask like it just it when you see her you know something bad has happened to her um and she um she spent some time in an aftercare home but a judge sent her back home like said the, the mother never had any consequences so um the judge sent her back home said the mom had time to think about what she's done <clears throat> and when the girl went back home when she was around 12 the mother started to traffic her trafficked her for about two and a half years she was rescued from that. She was placed back in an aftercare home. She left again. She was released again. And at this point, we had met her in the aftercare homes. So we started to work with her, just got to know her in the aftercare home. And she um, she, she ended up on the street being trafficked by the MS-13 gang. And so we had been looking for her like all over the capital city of Guatemala. And it's like finding like a needle in a haystack. At this point in 2020, like 2020, I think was a rough for a lot of us, but um, we know this was 2019. 2019, like my relationship with God kind of goes back and forth from either super close to him or I, I feel super distant. And in this time, I was on my way to like, kind of get close again. And so we just said a prayer. We were just like, hey, God, if, if you want us to find this girl tonight, like let's find let, – let's let's try to find let, – please, please put her in our path. And so we were out and, and, we, and I like three, three minutes after I said this, it was crazy. I look to my left and I see this girl in a hoodie and she's walking in the streets. Um, I'm like, I think that might be her. And my partner who was with me was like, why do you think so? I was like, she just looks kind of like the same height. I think I've seen that sweater before. 
But then the girl goes up and like scratches her head and I see the burn marks that she has on her hand. So I'm like, oh, I know that's her. I know that's her. We'll call her Julie. Um, so we go, we find her, like she just, she bear hugs us both. And she's like, hey, I got to get out of here. I'm like, I'm not safe. Um, and so we, we help her get out. We find a safe place for her in, a, in, a, in another aftercare home in, in Guatemala City. And we're at the home and she's, she's pretty, you know, she's, she's distraught. Um, we, we were running from her trafficker, obviously, but there was something else that was kind of on her mind. Um, and so she hands me, um, this, um, this pregnancy test, this, this, this piece of paper I read said positive. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like she's pregnant and she's been on the streets. I'm assuming she was consuming and, and, um, that this baby was in dire need for some help. And so, um, we take her to the hospital. Um, it's a little baby boy. And, um, and they're like, we gotta, we gotta get this, we gotta get this baby out now. She, she's like five or six months pregnant, but because of what she was consuming and, and just the trauma that her body had experienced, like the baby, uh, didn't have enough liquid in whatever, wherever it was. And, and they need to get it out because it was dehydrated. And so the baby was born, um, and it was, it was a healthy little baby boy and she actually named it Tyler, which was super sweet on her part. I was super touched, but, um, so little baby, little baby Tyler, um, uh, was born and he, uh, he goes into, um, an aftercare home specifically for babies, like, so he can grow and he can develop. Um, and so that, 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 that's what happened with that portion of the story. After that, unfortunately, this girl, um, she ended up going back, um, to trafficking. Um, her addiction was pretty strong. Um, and she, uh, kept going back to her trafficker who was also her drug dealer and it ended up, um, uh, back on the streets. And so that, that was really hard for us. That made me really just kind of upset at God where I was like, why would you allow this? We worked so hard to rescue her. And now she's right back, like where she started. And it got worse because this baby, um, we're just kind of at the mercy of judges in some cases. And some judges will send kids like certain parts of the country in a government shelter. And then we'll never hear from them again. And we wanted to keep, you know, keep in touch with this baby. So he, um, they sent him to, a, they, they, the judge takes him away and sends him back to, um, just kind of into the, into the abyss of the government system where we didn't think we'd ever hear from him again. Little Tyler was his name. Um, Shortly after that, like 2020 started and obviously 2020 brought its own challenges. Um, we weren't able to travel as often and provide even kind of any talking with the government to try to find out where this kid went. But in 2020, I met this Christian woman. Um, she came to me with a case where she was like, there's this American missionary, unfortunately. He's an evangelical missionary who is using his position as a missionary to abuse young girls. And so um, – me and her worked that case together for the majority of the pandemic, trying to get this, trying to get enough evidence on this American missionary who's in his mid sixties to get him put in jail for what he was doing to this, to these young girls. And, and that ended up happening. And me and this girl ended up, um, uh, becoming pretty good friends along the way. Um, she was married and, and had a kid of her own and they were living full time in Guatemala. And, um, around like December 15th or something, um, I get a call from her and she's just, she's just sobbing. And I like, I pick up the phone. I'm like, Hey, are, are you good? Like what's, like, what's going on? And she was like, well, like, as you know, like 
um, we've been trying to adopt for the last uh, three years in Guatemala. And the system's been so hard. It's been such a long process. And uh, she was like, but they, they just assigned us our two kids that we're allowed to adopt because they're not allowed to pick their kids that they adopt because of some legal mm-hmm. rule. If you can't like pick kids, like pick this kid or pick this kid, they just get assigned at random. And so she called me. She's crying. She's like, I just got to sign my two kids. I'm going to adopt. And I was like, that's great. Like, congratulations. Like, why are you crying? They should be like so happy. And she was like, well, like one of the kids like has your name. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, his name is Tyler, whatever, whatever, whatever his, his full name was. But he was like, and they told me the story of like why he's named Tyler and whose kid he is. <laughs> and he's like, and, and he's going to be my son. And, I, and the government assigned him to me. I'm going to adopt him. He's going to be my son. And she was like, it's, it was, she's like, I, I can't believe this is happening. And I couldn't either. Cause at the time, like my relationship with God was very kind of on the rocks again. Like, I hate to say it, but I think it's totally normal of like just the ups and downs of the yeah. relationship with God. But 2020 just happened. This girl was just lost in, in the darkness of addiction and trafficking. But like God is so faithful of every time I hit my low, like he, he comes and finds me like his grace. I like, like the book that you wrote, Scandalous Grace, of like that grace, it's like pursuing, like actively pursuing, hunting, almost like it's a wolf, was so applicable in this moment because once again, like God showed me like his mercy, his miracle, his power, his grace, and gently let me know. He was like, no matter how much you love these kids, don't you ever forget that I love them more than you do and that I'm always right by your side um, to help you rescue them help you heal them, help you do like, help you do your work. And it was never more evident to me than when my friend, the kid that had my name. Golly. You, the, the emotional weight of just, I mean, just the story you share, the, the ups and downs and ups and downs, like your, your adrenal glands got to be shot. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, cause I, you, the stories of redemption and you told me other stories when, when we were hanging out a couple weeks ago and man, they're so, but even the, the emotional high of some of those met with the emotional lows of the ones that don't find redemption and, and just seeing firsthand the darkness of humanity. That, that's just, that's, that's tough. I'm glad you have a therapist, seriously. And it really takes a certain kind of person. Um, what can pe so, I mean, anybody listening I mean, you could be, whether they're Christians or not, <laughs> religious or atheists, whatever, like what, um, what, what can people do? What can the, somebody who isn't going to do what you do for like full time, how can people do something? And is there, is there need for more help? Like, are there an overwhelming number of people who are involved in the kind of work you're doing that, you know, we you might say, you know, we got this, or is it like, oh my gosh, no, we have so many needs, whether it's personnel or financial or whatever. How how can people help if they have a heart, if their hearts are being kind of tugged during this podcast? Well, um, they could totally like buy your book, The Scandalous Grace, to know how much God loves them. Shameless, shameless plug for your book. Um, that would be, that'd be an awesome thing. But um, what they could do, obviously, like we always have financial needs. And so, um, so OURrescue.org is, is the is the donation site for OUR. Libertas Freedom is for is for uh, Libertas. Both of those organizations obviously need money. Like we need money. It costs money to 
to rescue. It costs money to heal. It costs it costs money to make this work go. But like there's there's things that people can do. Um, just like everyday people, everyday steps that people can take. Um, the first thing I would say is uh, is look into foster care. Honestly, like there that's a, where a lot of the survivors that get rescued here in the United States end up is foster care. And like there's there's such a need for like good foster care parents or and good people that just like house these survivors and kind of show them like what a real family looks like, like what what grace looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what a healthy relationship between mom and daughter, father and daughter, mm-hmm. father and son looks like. Um, so if they have that heart and they, they want to serve in a very tangible way, mm-hmm. foster care is a great a way to start. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this plug out there too. Um, it's what what people can do to help curb trafficking is stop watching porn. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, that was a question I was um, gonna ask: is the relationship between the, the explosion of porn use and trafficking are those directly linked? Is that? Yeah, I think like I mean, it, there takes concrete steps for like men to go out and purchase a child for sex or purchase a woman for sex. And porn is is just like the grease that like that makes it happen where the slide happens because you just you get exposed to such violent forms of pornography. It dehumanizes women, dehumanizes men to the point where you're like, I want to buy a a girl working in the street. I want to buy a child off the dark web or whatever. But then like I've never very few cases, maybe maybe 5% of my cases did not have some kind of camera involved. Um, huh. All the other cases of, of the survivors that I work with had some kind of filming of their abuse happen. And huh. so um, that ends up somewhere. And when you consume that, you, you push up the market for that to where these girls who are being trafficked also get filmed and their abuse gets uploaded um, all over the internet. Like you never know like the real story behind like a, like mm-hmm. a pornographic video that you're watching. Um, and if, if people were to stop watching porn, um, I think that less men would purchase, uh, women and children for sex, which is, this is the only reason trafficking exists is because there's a demand for it. Mm. If they would stop doing that, trafficking would go away and the, the demand for commercial sex would go way down. Um, but then like just training too, like, I think another thing is there's tons of free trainings. OUR has one. If you go to OURrescue.org slash training or something, it helps walk you through like the signs of where um, like just your everyday person can, can see something and identify something and report that due to the correct authorities. And I'd probably say that's the third way that people could help with um, is having that knowledge to when they see something, knowing that something's not right because they have the knowledge base mm-hmm. and be able to call somebody, report something so that the law enforcement can intervene on the survivor's behalf because mm-hmm. – the more people stay silent, the more people that don't know, or don't notice something off, um, the more, the longer the exploitation is going to go on. Because um, these these victims interact with the community on a day to day basis. It's just that the community may not be aware enough of the signs to know that something wrong is happening. Okay. Well, Tyler, you've given us enough to meditate on and pray about. Um, thank you for the work you do. Seriously, it's it's incredible. It takes a certain kind of person and. Uh, Man, I, I'll put all the info in the show notes that you gave. So if you guys are interested, go check out the show notes. And um, yeah, look forward to seeing you again sometime soon. Yeah. Awesome. All Thanks, right. Preston. Take care. Take care.